please turn to uh, Revelation, the 22nd chapter, please. I will read the chapter. Excuse me. The word of the living God. Let's please give it your full attention. Revelation chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruits every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work, according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to enter, excuse me, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, we began the study several years ago, study of the book of Revelation, and we proceeded step by step verse by verse to give the sense of the reading. 
And that is what preaching is. We are instructed from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, uh, in verses 7 and 8, it says, They caused the people, I'll just read it here, uh, also, and they're listed a uh, number of names of priests and, and, uh, uh, and the Levites, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So that's what a preacher is to do, is to take the word of God and to um, give the sense of the reading. Um, and that's, uh, that's what we... Why not just read the scripture itself without comment, without any, anything like that? Uh, well, that does sound like should be the way to go and make my life easier. Uh, but uh, uh, in Keith's life as well. But uh, first of all, we have the commandment from the Lord, the example here of what Nehemiah, uh, what, the, what they did in Nehemiah uh, to, to give the sense of the reading. And like it or not, people change through the centuries. And what meant one thing to some people in one century uh, means something different or means nothing at all to people in another century. And words change their meanings. And uh, we keep up with, with that in Bible translations to a degree, but uh, uh, words do change their meanings. And cultures are different all over the world. They change with time. Uh, some words and practices have meaning to some cultures. But if you took that even today and put it into another culture, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Uh, so... Uh, The Lord decided to raise up men at different ages in various cultures, uh, different times, to explain his word to people living in these different times in these various cultures, to cause the people to understand the law, to give the sense to understand the reading, uh, to make application. Um, Spurgeon, the great preacher of the the 19th century uh, in England, uh, if you read his sermons today, uh, he makes wonderful comparisons, but they're comparisons to 18th century or to 19th century England. And a lot of the comparisons wouldn't mean anything to an American audience in the 21st century. Uh, you know, about you know, shoemakers and, and uh, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, there's got to be a, uh, an application uh, that uh, fits the people. Okay. As I say, we uh, uh, started this several years ago, and we tried to proceed step by step, verse by verse, uh, through it. Uh, We're on the very last chapter now. Uh, In our very first study and continuing thread, uh, we've always had the triune God from whom all things proceed and from whom all things flow uh, uh, in in the forefront. Uh, And we have tried to unfold God's eternal counsel and his everlasting covenant down through the ages uh, from the creation of the world to its recreation in the new earth and the new heaven. Uh, Now we are closer to the new earth than we ever have been in our study uh, and that's where we're going to spend eternity. People think, well, we're going to spend eternity when we die in heaven. Well, we're not going to spend eternity in heaven because heaven, the Bible says, is a temporary place. It exists now and that's if we die today, we go to heaven. Uh, and that's where believers have gone. Uh, uh, they're in heaven. But that's just their spirits. Their bodies are in the ground or their bodies are not certainly not with them. Uh, what's going to happen 
at the end of time when Jesus returns is that there will be what the Bible calls the earth made new. And we will actually live, we will be given resurrected bodies and we will live forever with the Lord on the earth. And it will be as or more real than what you see here. And what, what our life is here. It's not going to be some ghostly thing where we're floating around and stuff. We'll actually have things to do and we'll live forever and uh, we'll be perfected. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, Francis, Dr. Francis Nigel Lee has written, let us note that paradise lost, lost in the Garden of Eden uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, will become paradise regained in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a wonderful statement. Before the fall... Um, Man started from the Garden of Eden, and now he will end up via the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, remember, praying in the Garden before he was crucified, uh, into paradise, into the Garden of the New Jerusalem. We've seen the book of the Revelation is a story of God's working through history for the good of his church and for his glory. We've seen how he has unfolded his covenant with his people throughout the centuries. That's what the story of the book of Revelation is. It's God's unfolding of his covenant. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is God's unfolding his covenant uh, with his people. Uh, As, man, I've cited several times, H. uh, Grattan Guinness writes in the preface to his remarkable book, and you haven't read it, uh, please do. In fact, I put a link. I found it's on on the Internet. You You can read it for free or you can get a a used copy at a reasonable price. Uh, In fact, I can send you a PDF if you want. Um, History Unveiling Prophecy. Uh, uh, Guinness says, quote, In two ways does the great revealer of the prophecy, of course he's speaking of the Lord, explain its meaning by words and by deeds, in written words and acted deeds. He's given us a verbal explanation, and in the long course of Christian history, he has fulfilled its predictions. In pointing to the words and deeds of God, we act as his witnesses. What has God said, and what has he done? These are the questions, Guinness says. What has God says, and what has he done? He says, we're wearied with vain speculations as to the meaning of prophecy, which have no other foundation than the assertions of men. That's why I always try to give multiple scriptural support for any assertions I make from this pulpit. I mean, you know, I'm not here to give you my opinions. I'm here to tell you what the Lord says in the Bible. He goes on to say, We are wearied with speculations as to imaginary future fulfillments of prophecies which have been plainly accomplished before our eyes in the past. Prophecies on whose accomplishment in the events of Christian history the structure of the great reformation of the 16th century was built on the fact of whose accomplishment in their days the confessors stood and the martyrs suffered. Alas, the speculations of men have clouded these facts and brought into disrepute the holy word of God. The problem is a lot of people approach, you know, a lot of authors and pastors approach the book of Revelation without a solid grounding in the Old Testament. And much of the book is a commentary and further development of the Old Testament. Uh, particularly the books of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Uh, We must know the major events in the history of the world as well. So we have to know the Old Testament 
pretty well, and we have to understand the major events in the history of the world. If we don't know much about the French Revolution, we don't know much about the Reformation, when we see it, it, it clearly uh, says in the Bible, uh, talks about that, we won't make the connection. We won't understand that. So we need an education in world history as well, at least the basics. Um, the book of Revelation is a history book. It's a record of history from the first century um, A.D. down through the ages to our own time and beyond. And it's a book of consolations for the saints and its warnings to unbelievers. See, history is the interpreter of prophecy. What happens in history interprets prophecy. When Christ was to be born, where he was to be born, uh, what his ministry was going to be like, what his sufferings would be, his death on the cross, what that meant, his life and death, uh, his resurrection and more. They were all foretold in the Old Testament. But few people understood it until it all came to pass in history. So that's what I mean by history has to interpret prophecy, or as Ganesha's book, book title is uh, um, History Unveiling Prophesy, Prophecy. Uh, the rise of the papal antichrist to the leadership of the visible church, uh, largely, and the consequent falling away of the church into apostasy, all happened in history, all predicted in the book of Revelation. The continuing remnant of God's covenant people, such as the Waldensians, Baudois, and others, and the persecution of those people by the Antichrist are all, have we seen in the sermon series many times, prophesied in the book of Revelation. You may remember a sermon I gave that, uh, some, any of these are on sermonaudio.com, even the very day, the very day that Martin Luther was to post his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door, which ignited the Protestant Revolution is foretold in the book of Revelation. Today. But again, almost no one comprehended these prophecies until the events occurred. Uh, Guinness says, quote, from the beginning of the world to the present day, time has ever been the chief interpreter of prophecy. For prophecy is history written in advance. Prophecy is history written in advance. The foretold, he says, becomes the fulfilled. Now, not everybody believes this today about the book of Revelation or about prophecy. Most interpreters of prophecy, predictive, predictive prophecy, we're not talking, all, all scripture is prophecy, but we're talking about predictive prophecy here. Most interpreters of the book of Revelation either think it's mostly about the first century, Apostle John's time, um, Nero's, you know, it talks about Nero. Um, or they regard it, another school of thought regarded as kind of a nebulous mass of things in general in history, but no real specifics. Uh, or, the most popular one currently, they see it as largely about the future. The book of Revelation is largely about the future, the future to us. Now, I've explain these views in previous sermons and I'll go through them and why I believe scripture teaches they are all in error not only does scripture teach that the book of revelation is history written in advance but most of the commentators from the earliest times believe that as well um, 
I can cite among the church fathers Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Victorinus, um, Eusebius, Athanasius, Jerome, Augustine, uh, among the Middle Ages, Bede, Andreas, Anselm, the Waltenses, Wycliffe, the Lollards, John Huss, Jerome of Prague. Virtually all the reformers believe that. I would say all the reformers. I'm, I'm not aware of any that didn't. Uh, whether Scottish, English, or Continental, uh, the Puritans believe that about the book of Revelation. Um, Sir Isaac Newton, the Geneva Bible, which was the foundation rock of the United States, brought over by the, by the pilgrims on the Mayflower, used as the, as the basis for our laws. Um, the uh, Jonathan Edwards, who is almost universally considered to be the greatest theologian America has produced, and many, many others, they all take the same approach to the book of Revelation that this sermon series has. It's called the historicist or historical approach. As Guinness writes, those who take this historical approach as in, are in the greatest of company, men distinguished for their ability, their assiduity, their spirituality, their deep study of the prophetic word, in short, by what appear to be the great and best expositors of the book of Revelation. Modern historical interpreters of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, are in good company. They stand with the church fathers, the confessors, the martyrs, the reformers, with men who suffered for the truth they believed and were guided and inspired by the interpretations they have handed down to posterity. The fanciful interpretations of the preterists, now those are the ones who believe the book of Revelation uh, was written in the time of the Roman Emperor Nero, and to be a Neronic, if you will, of the, in Nero's time in its references, have never been a practical power in the history of the church. And the vague interpretations of another modern school, which reduces the prophecy to a nebulous mass of anticipations of things in general in human history, Ganesh says, they have wrought no victories, they have accomplished no reformations. They have sustained no martyrs and are self-refuted by their impotence and unworthiness as expositors of the last great revelation of Jesus Christ concerning, quote, the things which were, quote, come to pass. The same may be regard, regarding the reveries of the futurists, that almost everything is going to happen sometime in the future in the uh, book of Revelation. Uh, Barren of practical and worthy effects, they have denied accomplishments recognized by the great mass of prophetic interpreters in the past. They have invented future fulfillments as as unsubstantial and impossible dreams. They have forsaken the great trend, the main path, the well-trodden highway of apocalyptic interpretation based on divine explanations of prophetic symbols and unquestionable historic facts for empty speculations about the future unprofitable speculations as to the supposed coming universal dominion of a short-lived infidel antichrist to be seated in a literal temple to be erected by the Jews in Palestine, who in the brief space of three and a half years is to fulfill all the wonders of the apocalyptic drama and exhaust the meaning of the majestic prophecy which the Church of God has been blindly misinterpreting and misapplying throughout all these ages. He's talking about, if you turn on TV and they're talking about the book of Revelation, you'll hear exactly what he's talking about. Because that's pretty much all you hear on TV or radio when they talk about future prophecy in the book of Revelation is all this stuff about, you know, Russia is going to invade in the Middle East and maybe it's going to be the Chinese and they're just going to have all these weapons and they're going to have the 
Battle of Armageddon. That's all going to happen in the future, and then Christ is going to come back. But he'll he'll be surrounded by these troops, and he'll have to call out to the Father to save him and God's people, and all this nonsense. Uh, Ganesh says, "Surely it is time for such interpreters to consider the unscripturalness and unreasonableness of the method of interpretation which they employ, the absence of authority, of scriptural warrant for their views, the entire lack of demonstration, human or divine, and the fruitlessness of their speculations as affording no present guidance to the church. That's important. The futurists offer and preachers offer no present guidance to the church in their interpretations. Only it's the historical interpretations offers guidance to the church, saying we're living in this particular period of time. What are we to do? How are we to act? What are, what are we to do? No presence guidance to the church. And finally, their injurious, injuriousness as extinguishing the lamp which God has given his people to guide their steps along the perilous way of their pilgrimage. I am well convinced that many excellent persons adopt these modern prophetic speculations because good men have advocated them here and there, and for no better reason. They've heard them advanced in prophetic conferences. They've read them in books, such as Left Behind, you know, The Late Great Planet Earth, etc. You know, there's even a, I looked it up on Amazon.com to see if there, I thought, is there such a thing? There is, there's a Left Behind video games. Uh, and and he goes on. Uh, uh, they've read them in books and tracts full of confident, confident assertions, superficial and dogmatic compositions on the <clears throat> excuse me on the sublimest questions which can exercise the human mind. And they have been satisfied to believe without proof and to repeat without independent investigation the marvelous inventions of busy brains as to the Antichrist of the future without ever having soberly inquired whether reformers and martyrs were right or not in their recognition of the Antichrist has already come. As long reigning in the professing church, the standard bearer of an abominable apostasy, the very masterpiece of Satan for the delusion of mankind. Of course, he's referring to the Roman faith and the, and the papacy. Let us appeal to such to open their eyes to the facts of history. Just reminds me, I was reading a transcript of an interview with, people know Dave Hunt? Know that name? Yeah. Uh, well, he's one of these guys with the futuristic stuff. And uh, he was asked by the interviewer, I can probably find this and send it to you, uh, he was asked by the interviewer, well, aren't you concerned that your views really are not supported by people like John Calvin, the Puritans, the great uh, uh, church fathers and all. And Dave Hunt's answer, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's pretty close. Oh, I haven't read any of that. Uh, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in those books, I'm sure, but you know, I just look at the Bible. I haven't read any of that. I don't, he doesn't care what Calvin or the Puritans or anybody. It's, it's his own interpretation of the Bible that's, that's important. So. Before we begin here, we haven't even started in Revelation 22. That's all preface, by the way. But actually, the sermon won't be that much longer. Uh, we'll begin a verse-by-verse exegesis of the 22nd chapter uh, starting the next time. But... Uh, Let's very quickly, I mean just bam, bam, review what we've seen in the book of Revelation up to now. Uh, We started with the, uh, uh, of course, Christ reveals himself to the Apostle John uh, in the cave 
uh, on the Lord's Day in Patmos. Um, and then he addresses the seven churches. He then uh, uh, discusses a lot of symbolic language, but what we looked at is how it's the Roman Empire in decline, the spread of Christianity, fall of the Western Roman Empire, the continuation of the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, um, the rise of Islam, uh, the fall then of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, the Protestant, uh, well, Byzant- at least the Byzantine part of the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantine aspect of it, uh, the Protestant Reformation, uh, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg, uh, the French Revolution, uh, the persecutions of, of uh, believers, uh, the 1260 years of papal dominance. You remember how we calculated the 1260 years? Uh, the very, I think as we recall, we, had, we looked at three different interpretations of, of that. Um, the number 666, and uh, it's, it's reference to uh, Latinos, um, meaning the, the papacy. Um, the, uh, and then we talked about the, the forehead and the, and the hand, and do the, does this mean barcodes and, and things like that? Well, we may have barcodes that we can't, can't uh, de- deal without it, but you know, is that what the Bible's talking about? Probably not, because historically and, and in context, the Bible, when it talks about uh, the forehead and the hand, is referring to the will and the action. And so, if you are one of Satan's, you would have, uh, you know, you would have him in your in your uh, will and in your actions. Uh, and uh, it, it's an old. It goes back to the to the uh, uh, Roman times and other pagan times, uh, where soldiers, for example, would have the name of their commander uh, on their on tattooed on them. Uh, or the name of the god that they fought for would be tattooed on them, and they indicated, "I'm, you know, I'm of that party. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm of that commander. I'm, I'm of that god." Uh, and we saw, of course, then uh, uh, the events of uh, the gradual uh, diminution of papal power, and then we have uh, um, the punishment of Babylon, the, uh, the that is uh, the papal power, uh, which is the false church, and then the true church the end, uh, the last day, the judgment, uh, and the new earth and the new heavens. So there we go. Quick, quick tour of what we're doing so far. So let's at least look at the first verse of Revelation 22. Revelation 22. We're just going to look at that. First, let's look at, uh, go back to chapter 21, verse 9, because actually, you know, the chapters in the Bible are arbitrarily chosen by men. John just wrote this long letter. He didn't divide it into chapters and verses. And so the problem is we start with chapter 22 and it says, and he showed me. Well, who? Jesus or, you know, somebody there or who, who showed him? So then you have to go back before and say, well, who? What's going on? Well, this is the same situation here. And we go back, and we have to go back all the way to, to uh, ver- because we keep saying he, he, he. Well, who's he? Well, the he is in verse 9 in chapter 21. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me. And then beyond, it keeps going there. So this must be the same angel. It's he. He showed me. A pure river of water of life 
clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Please turn to Genesis chapter 2. Second chapter of Genesis. Verse 10 says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and came into four heads. Now, the garden of Eden had a river. Revelation 22 describes a river in the second paradise. A river of water of life. See, the Bible compares rivers with not only earthly blessings, but spiritual blessings. Here we have the earthly river in the Garden of Eden, and we have the new earth uh, uh, having a river of water of life. Uh, Psalm 36, 8 says, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures, the Lord's pleasures. Um, Psalm 46, 4 says, There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. Psalm 65, You enrich it with the river of God, which is full of water. Isaiah 48, 18, Peace as a river. Or him that gets titled that. Uh, Isaiah 33, 21, The Lord shall be to us a place of broad rivers and streams. So the Bible uh, talks about rivers uh, in, in symbolically giving spiritual blessings as well. And we in Texas know how valuable water is. Uh, when, we, when we lived in Virginia, we kind of took rain for granted. It was like, you know, getting tired of this rain all the time. Uh, but we in Texas know how valuable water is. We know that creation is utterly dependent on water falling down from the sky to live. Actually, I I did read somewhere there are parts of the world where water actually does fall from the sky. They call it, was it rain, I think was the name? Uh, But seriously, if rain didn't come, all plants and living creatures, including man, would die. But can we make rain? People have tried, you know, putting some kind of chemicals in the clouds, it's cloud seeding and that kind of thing, but it doesn't really sometimes it works a little bit most of the time it doesn't seem to work so we can't make rain so if it weren't for the Lord bringing rain we'd all die, and plants would die and animals would die, and everything would just dry up and blow away, so the Lord gives us water rivers are where rainwater collects they can be said to be rivers of life Rivers on this present earth, we learn from Scripture, are shadows of the new earth's rivers. As much as our present rivers are rivers that nurture and sustain life, physical life, the river in the earth made new, which is pure, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, will nurture and sustain our spiritual life. Uh, This is the living water of which Jesus spoke when he was, remember he was talking with a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, Jesus well, let's look at that, John chapter 4 the gospel of John chapter 4 we've read this many times but think of it now about uh, water in the context of water
John chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And then down to 13, the last part of half of 13. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, Jesus said. But He's talking about the physical water in the well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You drink of the spiritual water that Jesus gives you and you'll never want any more spiritual comforts You'll never want for anything spiritually. So he says, you'll never thirst again. You know, you'll you'll be satisfied. You'll be overwhelmed. You know, your cup will runneth over uh, with with joy and with with uh, uh, every spiritual fulfillment. You'll never need anything uh, after Jesus gives you His living water, and it will also be a you will become a well springs up into spring up into everlasting life. So the reward will be everlasting life. And also you'll be spilling over and, and witnessing to others and that your joy will be palpable. Christ also says in Revelation 21.6, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Which is pretty much what he told the woman at the, at the well. So the river in the new earth, uh, you and I will walk on the banks of that river before we know it, before we realize it, is described as pure in verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life without spot or blemish, just like the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. It's a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. You know, I grew up in Illinois in a town on the Mississippi River. Uh, it's one of the biggest and longest rivers in the world. It's a, it's a beautiful river, and it's certainly, I mean, it's, it's over a mile wide where I grew up. Uh, and it's well-deserving of its accolades as the mighty Mississippi. It also deserves one of its other names, the muddy Mississippi. Um, but it's not unique. If you look closely at any large river, it's kind of, you'll see it's muddy, uh, just the nature of a river. Uh, the river in the new earth is as clear as crystal. The river Ezekiel described in his book, chapter 27, verse 9b, everything shall live wherever the river cometh. That foretells Christ, our river of life. David longed for the water of the town in which Christ would be born, saying in 1 Chronicles 11:17, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem. Now, if he didn't know what he was talking about, why would he just say that? Just, well, I'm thirsty. Give me some water from some well someplace. No, he's referring to Christ. Give me water from the, give me the living water from the well of Bethlehem. Our Lord told the Samaritan woman of this heavenly water, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The river and the earth made new in the King James verse, Virgin in uh, verse 1 in Revelation 22 is translated clear as crystal. The word translated clear here is the same word that's translated in Revelation 22, verse 16, as bright. Jesus said, I'm the bright and morning star. Same word used. Now, probably the King James Version translators, who were the best in the world, using the text that the Lord has preserved through the ages, received text, 
decided that clear rather than bright was a better word to describe water, whereas bright rather than clear was a better word to describe a star. Makes sense. And that's kind of an example of the choices the translators have to make. I would point out that if you replace clear with bright in verse 1, it takes on an additional meaning that might be helpful to us. Uh, We can do it because it's the same word. It's not like we're adding or changing scripture. That is, the river is not only clear to look upon, but it is bright. It reflects the brightness that it has upon the redeemed, which is the radiance of the glory of God. And it reminded me of the glory of God when Moses saw God. In Exodus 34, beginning verse 28, it says, And he, Moses, was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, the Ten Commandments, when he came down from the mount that Moses wist not, Moses did not know, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. The glory of God was reflected in Moses' face. The river in verse 1 is described as proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Well, that's not a hard one to figure out there. It proceeds out the source of the river. You know, every river has a source somewhere. Trace it back, and it's you know in the mountain somewhere. Uh, well, the source of the river is the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the source of all of our blessings, because that's what this river is symbolic of, of our very life, because it says it's eternal life, are from the Father through the mediation of the Son, the Lamb of God. Acts 17.28, in him we live and move and have our being. And he again is, is the living water. So, so this is all symbolic of Christ. It is a river of grace. It flows through from the throne of God through the Lamb, through the mediation of Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, we need a mediator because God the Father... Uh, is cannot tolerate sin in his presence. Uh, so we need uh, a man who has taken upon himself our sin uh, to mediate, to, to, be, to be between us and the Father. If we're in the presence of the Father without Christ, we're destroyed. You know, of all the name, many names of Christ in the Bible, the name the Lamb describes his grace best, I think. His merciful blessings to us, his saving us, his nurturing us solely out of his desire to love us as his children and for nothing that we have done. We read today in the first chapter of the Gospel of John that it's not of the will of man that we believe. And Arminians can read that and still say Arminians, but it says it's not of the will of man that we believe. See, the Father's grace comes through Christ, the mediator between God and man. I, I quoted First Timothy 2. Uh, and this book, the book of Revelation, describes Christ as the Lamb of God more often than it describes him any other way. In preference to any other of his titles in Scripture. 
So that shows us the book of Revelation is above all the story of God's grace to his people. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff goes on in the book of Revelation, uh, but it's a story above all of God's grace, how our Heavenly Father cares for us so deeply that he ordained that his only son be tortured and die the most agonizing death and spend the equivalent of an eternity in hell so we would not have to. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, you know, the book of Revelation is full of terrifying events, but we should be comforted by the fact that Revelation reminds us again and again that Christ is the Lamb of God. The way in which God's mercies, His grace, are poured out upon His people. That as a child of God, you're not to be afraid. All the terrors described in the book of Revelation are directed at God's enemies, not at you. To you, he's the sweet, gentle, innocent Lamb of God who has taken your sins upon himself. He died in your place so that you can enjoy eternal life with him. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, as the Father, hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And finally, the river of the water of life and the earth made new is also the river of pure sanctification. You know, what is sanctification? We hear the word a lot. What, what exactly is sanctification? Well, you can look up in theological dictionaries and get great definitions of it. Let me give you a, a personal definition. I think sanctification for me, is simply living more the way I know the Lord wants me to live than I did last year. You know, every January, January 1st, I look, look at my life and say, am I, am I, can I see a visible difference in the way I behave and think and act this year, this past year, uh, than I did last, last year at this time? Um, sanctification is when you find you don't act on your temptations as much as you did before. You find the desire in your life to turn away from sin and to please the Lord growing more and more. The more you read and think about God's Word, the Bible, the faster that happens. But you'll never in this life become sinless, of course, we know that. The Bible says that if we say no, have no sin, uh, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't have pure sanctification in this life because we still under, live under Adam's curse. Original sin, which causes us to sin personally, even if we were, as I said, were to live our whole life without committing a sin, which is impossible, we'd still have sin in our soul because of Adam and Eve. The water of eternal life comes only from Christ. John 7.37, Jesus said, again, just like he said to the woman at the well, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And the only way to drink that water and attain eternal life is this Romans 10 verse 9 if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for the scripture saith whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. 
Skorenica. Father, indeed, we, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Give us that living water, Lord Jesus. Make us wells of water springing up into everlasting life. If there's any within the sound of my voice that don't know this in their own hearts, it's not, it's not difficult. We ask, Lord, for the gift of faith for them, that they would confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. And then we have the promise from Scripture. When we do that, we will be saved. But faith is a gift. If we don't have that gift of faith, we need to pray for it. Scripture says you have not because you ask not. If we don't think we have enough faith, and who thinks they do? So that applies to every one of us. Then we need to pray for more faith. Father, we ask thy forgiveness that we have not prayed for more faith. Make that a part of our prayers each and every time. We pray, Father, for those who aren't with us today. We pray for Frank and Mary. Give them travel mercies. Father, we we have our long list of prayer requests, Father, and uh, make us faithful to go through that during the week. Just divide it up and uh, pray so that we might go through it all uh, all by the end of the week, Father. Uh, we pray for, uh, particularly now, for Chuck's friend Larry uh, with his blood clots, Father. Uh, for Catherine's friend's uh, mother, Cindy's mother, uh, with pancreatic cancer, very difficult diagnosis, Father. Uh, we ask particularly that thou would strengthen Cindy and give her more faith that she might witness to her mother. And... Uh, open her mother's heart to receive thy word joyfully and to be saved. Uh, we pray for Ryan Meatyard and his broken ankle, Lord. Uh, mend it and uh, uh, help him to uh, recover fully. But most of all, Father, uh, mend his faith. Uh, strengthen it, Lord. Use this time. We, we believe that, that uh, Father, that uh, you break ankles sometimes to get people's attention. And uh, maybe this be the case that uh, uh, this I would use this situation to bring him uh, more into faith. Father, we continue to pray for our troops overseas, protect them, family, but protect them, Father. Uh, Father, we remember uh, Benjamin and uh, Benjamin's family. Lord, continue to comfort them and bless them. Make this a time of turning to Thee rather than turning against Thee. We pray again for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Protect us now as we uh, make our way home or to the wedding. We ask Thy blessing upon uh, upon that as well. And we remember Kat and Sevi today. And uh, Father... Uh, Give us a good time of fellowship together, uh, and let us grow in grace, Father. Keep us in thy word during the week, and keep us in family devotions as well. Let us not neglect that. For it is in 
our Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.